We're gonna dig in once again on the idea and the, the importance of being positioned. Positioned to receive from God, positioned to be used by God. You know, your positioning matters. It, uh, it's great when you're in the moment and really great things happen and God does good things through you or for you, but it's very important that you get yourself in position ahead of time. That God is able to move you and shift you. That, that you're able to say, God's preparing me for things I don't even know He's preparing me for. And God doesn't just say, I'm going to prepare you, but He asks you to make decisions. You know, He's still doing the work. He's still doing the preparing. But throughout the New Testament, we are told to make decisions to prepare ourselves. Now, know this, when he says prepare yourself or cleanse yourself, all of these words are in the, in the Bible, in the New Testament. But you, when he says do this for yourself, cleanse yourself, prepare yourself, he's not saying do it in your own strength. He's not saying do your best job. What he's saying is God wants to do this through you. And as it says in Philippians, it, it says you've got to work out your salvation. You've got to work out what's within you. You've got to live out what's in you. But it is God who is at work within you. Paul said, I worked harder than everyone else, but it wasn't me working. It was the grace of God working through me and working with me. And so here's the important thing. You've got to put effort into this. You've got to put thought into this, but it is God that's putting power into this. You can't do this by yourself. We've been talking, especially centering around the parable of the sower and how Jesus said that if you had eyes to see and you had ears to hear and you had a heart to understand, you had an open heart, then what would happen was you would see, hear and understand, you would turn and you would be healed. And we've talked about seeing, we've talked about hearing, and I want to talk to you today about your heart, how important it is that your heart is ready for what God has, that your heart is prepared, that your heart is pointed in the right direction, that your heart is clear, your heart is pure. You know, this is something that kind of seems quaint. It kind of seems like something that's brought up in like a medieval movie, you know, where someone says his heart is true, you know, or her heart is noble. That seems so old fashioned to us. We don't talk like that anymore. We barely ever talk about somebody having a true heart to being a pure hearted person. But it is so important to God. The reason we don't talk about it as much anymore is because it's not that important to our culture. Our culture doesn't really talk in that language. They, they've they've kind of developed their own system of thinking that's separate from God's way of thinking. And so while I'm not here to condemn everybody in the world, I'm here to tell you, you need to understand that the, the world's way is not your way. And our culture is not our culture, if that makes any sense. The society we're in, the culture we're in, we love these people. We love the city God put us in. We love the nation God put us in but we are called to be separate and different. God has made you a new creation. He's changed things in you. So you have to think different than everyone else. You have to live different. And it's not because, you know, it's not living different in, in an outward sense, merely an outward sense, how we dress or how we talk. It, even though, you know, how we talk does change, what really is changing is how you see the world, how you, your motivation, how you hear, all of these things, now that you're a born again believer, if that's who you are today, all of these things are different. All of these things have changed in you. And I want to talk to you about your heart and why it matters. Let's, let's look back in Luke that we've been, we've been coming back to this chapter over and over again. We've read it in different gospels, but I want to bring you back to the book of Luke chapter eight, the parable of the sower. After he's told the parable, he's talked about people that had a hard heart, people that had a shallow heart, 
people that had a crowded heart, and now he's gonna talk about somebody that has a good heart. And he says in that good soil, the seed is sown and it bears a lot of fruit. It multiplies. That person's life is producing the, the fruit of God, the fruit of the Spirit. What God is doing through their life is multiplying. And he says it's not about, he, he makes it clear that it's really not about the quality of the seed because the seed is good. If the seed is God's word, the seed is good. If it's coming from God, it's already good. You know it's top quality seed. It's not the quality of the seed. It's not the skill of the sower. It's the condition of the soil. And he says here, the soil is your heart. And so here in the last uh, verse of this parable, he says in verse 15, this is Luke 8, 15, but the seed in the good soil, these are the ones who've heard the word in an honest and good heart and they hold it fast, they hold it tight and they bear fruit with perseverance. I want you to see that they have heard the word in an honest and good heart. What does that mean, honest and good? You might say, didn't Jesus say nobody's good? That the only one good is God? Doesn't the Bible say there's none righteous, no, not one? How could we any, any of us say we have a good heart? Doesn't the Bible say in the Old Testament that the heart is tricky and treacherous and deceitful and full of wickedness and nobody can know it? Well, the truth is, is that thank God, even though not one of us was righteous, God gave us his righteousness. So one of us was good, but he made us good. And in fact, he's talking here about hearts that may not even be born again, but there's something about them that, God's, that God honors and God can use. There's a heart that's open. There's a heart that's good. There's a heart that's honest. You know, in this idea of purity, sincerity, truthfulness, a true heart, this pops up over and over again in the Bible, especially in the New Testament. You know, it's funny, it's such a simple concept, but it's something maybe we don't talk about as much as we should. You know, we've, we've heard people say, examine your heart, check your heart. That's important, but maybe you don't know exactly how to do that. What should I be looking for? And sometimes when we examine our heart, we become self-obsessed and we just see all the flaws in us and we, or we see all the good things in us, but we're not really seeing what God wants us to see. We become people that are always looking inward rather than people that are looking upward. And so sometimes the, the, the teaching of examining your heart has become something it wasn't meant to be. It's become about you know always checking yourself to see if you're still saved or, or always checking yourself to find anything wrong. Really, if you do that, you're always going to find some flaw. You're always going to find some things. You're, you may get to the point where either you think you're the best person in the world or the worst person in the world. The problem is you will be self-centered. What we want to be is God-centered. How do I check my heart? How do I guard my heart? How do I tend to the garden of my heart in a way that is God-honoring, that is grace-powered, that is going to let God's work in my life do its work and not me try to do it for God? Here's what it says. He says, if you'll have a good and an honest heart, that idea of good, that idea of honest, those, those two words there could both be translated good or beautiful or true. There's two different words he uses. But I think honest is, is, is a good start. I think good and honest are really good ways to translate it because sometimes when we see this word that, that's talking about goodness, it's, it's used in a lot of different contexts. But when it's used in the context of the heart, we see God talk about a sincere heart an uncomplicated heart, a true heart, a heart 
that's, whose motives are clear, a heart that is not crowded with other things. You remember in the parable, there were hard-hearted people. There were people that were shallow, but then there were people that had a heart to hear and to receive, but thorns grew up alongside. Weeds came in to their garden and they didn't pluck the weeds out. So the weeds choked out the, the plant. The weeds choked out what God was trying to do in their life. They let their heart become crowded. When we talk about a good heart, a sincere heart, an honest heart, it's a heart that's not trying to hide. It's a heart that's not trying to be something it's not. That you are coming to God and saying, this is who I am. Lord, I, I, every part of me is open to you. But it's also an uncomplicated heart. Your motives are right. Your heart is directed in the right direction. And we're going to find out through God's word how big that is, how important it is. You know, last week we talked about Jesus saying the eye is the lamp of the body. And if your eye is clouded, if your eye is bad, if your eye is dark, then everything inside you will be dark. And we talked about how it matters, how you see the world, how you, you perceive what's going on around you, how you perceive your own situation. But another application to that verse is also talking about your motives. You know, your motives color everything. Your, your, your reason for doing things, your reason for, for, for praying a certain way or, or moving in a certain direction, your, your motives drive everything. And so if your motives are off, it's gonna, it's gonna affect the way you receive. It's gonna affect the way you're positioned. It's gonna affect a lot of things. It's a domino effect. And so Jesus is so careful and so loving and sometimes very blunt and truthful with his disciples when he addresses their motives. You know, you remember when uh, Peter had this great revelation of who Jesus was. He said, you're the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you. You got that from God. And then Jesus goes on to say, I'm going to have to die, but I'm going to rise again. And Peter rebukes him, takes him aside and says, no, God forbid it. Have pity on yourself. God forbid that you should have to do that. And Jesus says to him, right after Peter has this great teacher's pet moment, Jesus says, get behind me, Satan, for you are looking at things as man does. You, are, you have the motives of man and not the motives of God. You're seeing it from a man's perspective. You, are, you, you want things man's way and not God's way. Jesus had to address something in Peter's heart that was affecting how he heard Jesus' plan, how he heard God's plan. And because Peter heard it wrong, you know, Peter still struggled with this. Guys, he still struggled with this. He struggled with it in the garden when Jesus was giving himself up to the authorities and allowing himself to be arrested. And Peter comes charging with a sword, slashing at a guy's head, cutting off a servant's ear because Peter thinks, this can't happen and I've got to stop it. Once again, Peter's heart is affecting his actions. He is not letting God's way become his way. You know, if we read through the New Testament, we read about people who said, God's, God says they have a sincere heart. We read about people that have their motives that are off. In the book of Acts, we, we find both examples. I want to read you something from the book of Acts chapter 11. This is, of course, when the church in Antioch began. This church of, of ragtag folks, well, not really ragtag, but a new type of church, a church that was born amongst the Gentiles. Uh, not, not merely uh, the Jewish uh, diaspora spread out, but, but really uh, Greeks and, 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 and other types of, of people that, that weren't of the Jewish faith were being born again. And God's hand was on it, and a mighty move of God was taking place. 
Then it says that the apostles heard word of this, and so they sent Barnabas down to help the church. Here's what it says. The news about them, this is Acts 11, verse 22. The news about them reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas off to Antioch. When he arrived and witnessed the grace of God, he rejoiced and began to encourage them all with resolute heart to remain true to the Lord. For he was a good man, and he was full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and considerable numbers were brought to the Lord. Listen, it says he, he encouraged them with a resolute heart. Literally in the Greek, it says with purpose of heart. Barnabas came into that situation with a heart that was set on purpose, was directed in purposes. And then later on, it tells us that Barnabas is a good man. He's a good man. Now, I know that that means a thousand different things to a thousand different people. The phrase, a good man or a good woman. You know, sometimes when we say that, we're, you, we, we often hear it in our culture, speaking of uh, somebody who's worth marrying. You know, he's a good man. She's a good woman. But really, when, when we see it in the Bible, it's not about marriage material. It's not about someone that's, that's got all the right qualities. When it talks about someone being good, it means to the core, you know who they are, that their, their heart is right. It's directed towards God. It's full of something and it's uncluttered with other things. You know, I would say that a good and a true and an honest heart is a very uncomplicated heart. Part of our problem is that our hearts become very complicated. They become divided. A divided heart can't be used by God in the way that an undivided heart can. An undivided heart, a pure heart, now you might say, well, how in the world? Am I born with a pure heart? No. Do you just, do you just kind of, are you just a person that's born good or bad? No. Can you blame it on your parents? Not really. I'm sure good parent, I know good parents help, but, but come on guys, Jesus came to save all of us. And there's not one person whose background is so good or so dark that it gets in the way of what God wants to do in your life if you'll let him. And so no matter what your history is, this is not about being born into goodness, because we weren't. This is about letting God change your heart, letting it become directed and uncluttered and undivided and pure. Barnabas was known as a good man. He was a good man, but listen to this, he was full of faith and full of the Spirit. You know, there's, there's something to be said about purity of heart. You know, when, when I was growing up and I was a teenager, I, I grew up right in the middle of purity culture, which purity culture gets a bad rap. And, and let me tell you what it was. Purity culture was all about, you know, really helping teenagers, young people um, keep from slipping into sexual sin, keep from, from specifically that. I mean, it was about a lot of things, but, but mostly that, you know, that how do I keep my heart pure? How do I keep my mind pure? How do I keep my eyes fixed? And that's an important message. Now, the reason it kind of went off the rails at times was because people turned it into a legalistic exercise. It became about all the rules in your life rather than about the grace of God working through you. It became about external rather than internal affecting the external. There were some really good things, but it really became, in many ways, something that empowered the flesh rather than something that freed us from it. And so, you know, there, there was some really, there was sometimes it really helped people. I mean, it helped me. Uh, when someone would talk to me about being passionate for God and keeping my life pure and all of those, it helped me. But for some people, if it was done in the wrong way, it really did damage in their life because they, they weren't seeing God working through them. They weren't seeing Jesus working through them. They were saying, what do I need to do and, how, and all of the things that they could do 
And, and it became about the rules and not about what God was really trying to do in their heart. Because your behavior matters. What you do matters. Let's not just, let's not miss that. But what you do in your behavior is an outflow of what's in your heart. J- James says that your, your mouth is the rudder for your life. It says if you want to get, if you can get control of your tongue, you can get control of your life. If your mouth is out of control, your life will be out of control. Jesus says that it's out of the abundance of the heart that your mouth speaks. And so your mouth is the hopper that, or sorry, your heart is the hopper that your mouth is getting its ammo from. And and if your heart is full of Jesus, if it's full of love, then you're going to be speaking like that. Your life's going to go in that direction. If your heart is full of fear, your mouth will be speaking fear all the time. And you will be Begin to think fearfully. It'll come back. It's a vicious cycle. It'll fill your heart again. And, and then you'll find yourself making decisions based on fear. Fear dominates you. That's why it's so important that we speak God's word. Because when we speak God's word, it fills our heart. And when our heart's full, it goes back and feeds our mouth. It's a great ecosystem that God's created. So what I want you to see here is that with what's in your heart is going to drive everything that's in your life. If you can get that right, you can, you, can, you can begin to get your life in a position that God's going to not only use you, but actually get stuff to you, get, get his, uh, you know, put you in a position where you can be healed and, and delivered and made whole. And, and so many times it's about the heart we approach God with. Now, don't get me wrong. God's not looking for a perfect person. He's not looking for you to have all your ducks in a row, but he is a healer. And he is the one that cleanses us. And he is the one that that fixes what's broken and mends the brokenness. And so God will take you when you're broken. God takes you when you're hurting. God takes you when you're wrong. God takes you when you're right. God takes you when there's nothing good that you feel you have to offer him. He takes you just as you are, but he never leaves you that way. And so when we talk about purity, you know, when I was growing up, a lot of times purity was about what you didn't have in your life. It was about getting rid of all the impurity. But listen, your heart is not a vacuum. It can't be a vacuum. Nature abhors a vacuum. A vacuum will always suck things in. If you don't fill your heart with something, you'll you'll never experience that purity of heart because your heart, your purity can't just be about what's not in my heart. It has to be what's in my heart. The reason Barnabas was good, the reason his heart was true and heart was pure was because he was full of faith and full of the Holy Spirit. Because he filled himself with something, that's what he was full of. That's what came out. And when you fill yourself with these things, there's not room for their opposite. There's not room for fear. There's not room for hate. There's not room for those things because you filled your heart with the right things. And Jesus says, if you'll get your heart right, if you can get your heart open, if you can approach him with a sincere heart, he's not asking you to have a perfect heart. He's asking you to have an honest heart, a good heart, a true heart, an unhypocritical heart, a sincere heart. I want you to read this with me. In, in, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, you know, he says that, uh, um, he, he talks about uh, uh, Timothy's sincere faith that was put in him. The word sincere means without hypocrisy. It, it is so pure, it's true. Listen, he says this in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3, he says, As I urged you upon my departure from Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus so that you may instruct certain men not to st- teach strange doctrines nor to pay attention to myths and endless, endless genealogies, which give rise, rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. But the goal of our instruction, 
So listen, he says, stay away from just from getting off on side issues. Stay away from all the, the theories and all the, the, the things that don't actually move the ball forward. They don't actually do anything to advance God's kingdom. They're not actually moving things forward. What they're doing is serving as a distraction and a divider in the church. And we deal with this today, folks. He says this. He says, nor pay attention to myths and endless genealogies, which give rise to mere speculation, rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. But the goal of our instruction, the goal of our instruction, your goal matters. Your motives matter. The goal matters. The goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Let me read those again. The goal of our instruction is love. And that love is coming from three things. A pure heart, a good conscience, a sincere faith. Do you see how all of those three things share something in common? This pure heart, this good conscience, this sincere faith, it's, 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 a, it's a focus, it's a direction that God wants in your life. He says, and, and, and it's a result of, of this teaching. It's a result of the commandment. It's a result of God's word in your life. It's a result of your surrender to him that something's changing in your heart. Something's changing in your mind. He says what, what God wants is for love to sprout out out of a good heart, out of a sincere faith, out of, a, out, out of this, this, this pure uh, good conscience and a pure heart and a sincere faith. That's what God wants. And he says, that's the goal. You know, he talks about people, he says, who've made shipwreck of their faith because they've gotten off on issues they shouldn't get off on. You know, I've got theories about the Bible. I've got theories about certain verses, what ifs. Hey, have you ever thought about this? And, and it's fun and, and sometimes interesting to look into those things. But you know what? I don't preach those theories. And you know, I don't, not just don't preach them, I don't build my life around them. I don't center my, my prayer time, my Bible time around them. They're, they're fine, they're good, they're f- fun. And there's some things that you just go, I wonder. You know, I wonder, did Adam have a belly button? I mean, he, if he was just put on the planet and didn't ever have an umbilical cord, did he have a belly button? You know, these things I wonder, but you know what? I'm not, it's not life foundational. It's not moving the kingdom of God forward. Today, we're so obsessed with all these other things, and we love myths. In fact, we give myths more credit than they should. A myth is not necessarily a story about a Greek god or, or some sort of cre- you know, creation myth. Often, a myth is just something that gains steam, that it's fun to think about, it's fun to speculate about, but it really doesn't help you in life. It doesn't help bring anybody to the kingdom. These people that we admire in the Bible were so focused on heart. Their their heart was focused on the right thing. They had to tend to their heart so that they could be focused. Listen, when we talk about negative motives, listen, in the Bible, Ananias and Sapphira, Barnabas again, Barnabas started the giving revolution in the church. He gave, uh, he sold this big chunk of land. He gave all the money to the church so that they could feed people. This was a radical move and people started following his example. But the Bible says there was a couple named Ananias and Sapphira and they decided that they were going to sell some land and give a portion of the proceeds to the church. Now, I believe that was perfectly fine. There's nothing wrong with that. God didn't tell everybody. He didn't command everybody that they had to sell everything and give everything. This was something that God was doing free will. But what they did was their motive, while Barnabas' motive was, hey, God's doing something. 
The love of God controls me. I'm doing this out of love. I'm doing this out of obedience. I'm doing this out of faith. Their motive was, look at the credit. Look at how people love Barnabas. Look at the praise he received when he did it. So they sold some land. They kept some for themselves. And then they told the church they were giving all of the money. Well, Peter calls them out and says, you know, wait, is this all the money? Yeah, it is. They, they could have easily said, no, it's not. And that would have been great. It would have been fine. God would have honored that gift. But instead they lied. Both of them individually lied. And Peter says, why has Satan filled your heart so that you lie with the, to the Holy Spirit? How does Satan fill someone's heart? Satan doesn't fill your heart with satanic stuff that seems obviously evil. Most of the time, what Satan fills your heart with seems good. But it's the wrong stuff. It's the greed. It's the pride. It's all these things that you can justify, but they eat away at what God's put in your heart. It's the thorns. Their desire for credit changed everything. There was another man named Simon. And when Philip began to preach in Samaria and see the move of God in a mighty way, Simon was a sorcerer. He was somebody that the Bible says in the book of Acts, people thought was, was a man of God because he did these, these supposed miracles. And he was doing these, these fancy things. But when he saw what Philip had, he saw that it was real. Not like the tricks he pulled, not like the things he was messing with. What Philip had was real. And so he, he, he follows Philip around and eventually he says, I believe, and he's baptized. He seems to be part of the, the Christian group. But when Peter comes along, once again, Peter had a radar for these guys. When Peter comes along, this, this guy comes to him and says, hey, can I buy that Holy Spirit gift? I mean, I want that in my arsenal. The Bible says that Simon kept seeing the signs and wonders and was astonished. He wasn't really falling in love with Jesus. He was falling in love with the extra power he wanted. And so, so Peter says, your heart is full of the gall of bitterness. He says, he says, you need to pray and repent that you'd be delivered from this evil. I can see that you are in the gall of bitterness and the bondage of iniquity. Repent so that worse things don't happen to you. He, he's, he called him out and said, your motives are all wrong. Your heart is full of the wrong stuff. And so your motive for asking for the Holy Spirit and you're trying to offer money, your, your, your actions are revealing your heart. Now, God wants you to have the Holy Spirit, but you know, he wants you to have it for the reason he wants you to have them. Not Simon's motives. Simon's motives were revealed that day. Wrong motives are going to put you in a bad position. Right motives will put you in the right position. Your heart, when it's focused and it's undivided, it's not complicated with all these things. And listen, when the weeds come, you might have said, my garden is good. I started this with a passion for Jesus. I started with a passion for God. I, I loved him. That's why I started this uh, down this track. This is why I started down this highway. I did it for Jesus. Just when we start right, that's, a, that's an excellent thing. A right start is a good thing. But just because you started your garden and it was good and had good soil and it was no weeds and you planted the seed, don't you know that you got to go back and you got to weed it again? You gotta continue to pull up those weeds. I've known people in ministry for years that started out of pure passion and love for Jesus, but along the way, the cares and the business of ministry or the desire for exposure, all these things begin to crowd in and take over. If you don't tend to the garden of your heart, the weeds will pop up. So David said, Lord, examine my heart investigate me. See if there be any harmful thing in me. Lord, search my heart because you know it better than I know 
myself. Today, if you would say, Lord, I want you to see, like, why am I doing what I'm doing? Would you just check and say, and I'm not talking about being self-obsessed. I'm not talking about being sin conscious. I'm talking about saying, Lord, investigate my heart. What, do I still have the same purity of motives that I had before? And if you don't, it can be fixed. Jesus said to James and John, you don't know what spirit you're of. He's telling them, you know, call it, call it out when you're listening to the wrong voice, when you're being motivated by the wrong thing. Call it out in yourself. Let God expose it so that God can heal it and fill it with the right thing because these things creep up. Paul said to Timothy, in the last days, things are going to get difficult. And the reason they're going to get difficult is because people are going to be lovers of pleasure, lovers of money, lovers of self, hateful, irreconcilable, unloving, uh, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. You know, he goes through this list and you find out that they don't love God. They don't love people. They don't love good. He talks about what they don't love, and then he talks about what they do love. They love money, they love pleasure, they love themselves. So what he's telling you is the reason they don't love the right things is because they've let themselves love the wrong things. They've let their heart become crowded with so many things that it's crowded out the love of God. You know, John writes in 1 John, you can't, you can't love the things of the world and still have the Father's love in you. You've got to choose. I don't love things. I love God and I love people. In my own life, I'm not trying to be, I don't want you to take this and become the word police on each other. I don't want you to go catching each other unless that's a deal you made with your spouse that we're going to help each other here. But I just want to tell you my story. God's been helping me and I've been making the attempt to change my vocabulary. So that when I say love, it means love. Now, I understand that language is fluid and, and love means a lot of different things. If I say I love my wife and I say I love you, you understand that I don't love you the same way I love my wife. But at the same time, I'm trying to take love out of my language except when it's real and necessary. Let me give you an example. I love this house. That's something I would have said. But you know what? Now I just say I really like my house. I really like my... I really like my, my, you know, where I live. I really like this. I really like that. I, I like this coffee. I like this food. When you begin to change, because God didn't call me to love things. He called me to love him, and he called me to love people. And the problem with a lot of us is that we've let ourselves love things rather than love people and love God. And so I'm changing my language. I love God. I love people. And I like certain things. But, you know, things you like, you can give away. Things you like, when God says it's time to give that to someone, you can just give that to someone. If you've let yourself fall in love with it, it has your heart. Things should never hold your heart. Only God should hold your heart. And you open your heart to God and you open your heart to people. Those are the only, things, those are the only ones that we're meant to love. Everything else you can enjoy. God, the Bible says that he gives us all things to enjoy. You enjoy food, enjoy a vacation, whatever. But only love God and love people. See, I'm focusing, I'm trying to get back to that place where I'm saying, God, I want my heart to be pure and honest and focused. You know, Paul again says to Timothy, I know I'm quoting from this a lot, but it's so important. In 2 Timothy, he talks about those that are giving themselves over to empty chatter, worldly chatter, that they've, they've, they've become distracted. And in 2 Timothy 2, he talks about um, that, that no soldier entangles himself with the affairs of daily life. 
He says, you don't, you don't get involved in normal stuff. You gotta focus on being that soldier. He says, an athlete that's competing for the Olympics needs to be focused on the Olympics. You can't let yourself get torn in a thousand different directions. If your Wi-Fi is slow, we blame the internet company, we blame our router, but maybe it's the, the, the dozen devices that are drawing bandwidth. Maybe it's your neighbor that's stealing your internet. Have you ever checked what's using your Wi-Fi? And the reason it's so slow is because so many people People are using it. Maybe you wonder why the bandwidth of your heart, you have no passion for God. You have no passion for the things of God. Passion is a gift of God. Uh, that, that emotion, that desire, desire is of God. But when desire is towards the wrong thing, it's called lust. It could be your greatest enemy. Your greatest enemy should be your greatest strength. It's just about letting God kill the earthly passions, the fleshly passions, put them to death in your life and let God ignite a passion for him. Those passions will carry you. I love what C.S. Lewis talks about in The Great Divorce. He, ta- he tells a story about a guy that refuses to let go of this sin in his life. He won't let God kill it. He won't let God help him out and just put it to death because he makes excuses. Now's not a good time or maybe I can reform it. Maybe I just a little bit less of it. Wean me off. But when God, when he finally surrenders to God and God kills that thing, all of a sudden that, that, that little demon looking thing transforms into a, a, a mighty horse with, with, you know, that takes him uh, to where he needs to go because what he's trying to paint a picture of is, is that this passion in his life, this desire in his life is toward the wrong things. But if you'll let God take over your passion, take over your desire, he'll direct it and it'll become fuel for the fire. So Paul talks about giving yourself over to worldly and empty chatter and and just useless things. He says you need to be important. He says don't get, uh, solemnly charge them not to wrangle about words, which is useless and leads to the ruin of the the hearers. Avoid worldly and empty chatter, which is spreading like gangrene. Then he says this in verse 19, 2 Timothy 2, 19. Nevertheless, the firm foundation of God stands. Having this seal, the Lord knows those who are his. And everyone who names the name of the Lord is to abstain from wickedness. Now in a large house, there are not only gold and silver vessels, but also vessels of wood and of earthenware, some to honor and some to dishonor. Some are for, some you, you know, are, you are useful, some are beautiful, and some are just like the things you use when uh, you don't care if anybody's looking. It's, it, they're, not, they're not important, and you can't use them at a special occasion. You can't use them when you have guests over. That's just something you use when family's over. He says, if anyone cleanses himself from these things, from that wickedness, from that empty chatter, from those distractions, he will be a vessel for honor sanctified, that means purified, cleansed, made holy, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. Hear that, positioned. If you will cleanse yourself from those things, you will be a vessel of honor, useful to the master, and prepared for every good work. Do you wanna be used by God? He says, get the, get the weeds out of the way. Purify your heart. He says, get, get the stuff that's crowding your heart and clouding your vision. You know, walk, get your motives right. Get in the proper position. Position your heart. Find out where's my heart's treasure. Where's my heart pointed at? What's my heart full of? What's my heart's motive? And if you'll see that, here's what happens. He says, you'll be sanctified, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. Whether it's just the family, the special guests, or the queens coming over, you are useful for every good work. Now flee from youthful lusts 
and pursue, listen to this, pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart, but refuse foolish and ignorant speculations, knowing that they produce quarrels. And the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wrong, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. And in the next chapter, he talks about those lovers of self and pleasure and money and all of those things. Do you see here? He says, I want you to pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. A pure heart is so valuable in your life. If if your motives are off, you'll find yourself constantly in the wrong place. You'll find yourself constantly maybe asking for the right thing, but for the wrong reasons. James says, the reason you don't have what you are asking, the reason you don't have what you want is because you, number one, you've never asked. And how many of us do that? We think it'd be selfish to ask for what God's already promised. He said, or number two, some of you have asked, but you're asking for the, your motives are off. You're asking for selfish reasons rather than for God's. And you know, sometimes that's the key. We, sometimes we, we, we're so afraid of being wrong motive that we never even ask for things God freely gives. That's, that's in one ditch. And some people are asking, but they're asking and their heart is off. Their heart is clouded with other things. They're like Simon the magician, the Simon the sorcerer. They're asking for the wrong reasons. And he says, you're gonna miss it. So guys, I want you to know, God created you. God created your innermost being. He is purifying you. Peter says, if you would, if you would in obedience to the truth, Purify your souls for a sincere love of the brethren. Love each other fervently from the heart. Hebrews says that we should draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith. And I want you to say today, is my heart true? Is it good? Is it sincere? Not not because I made it right. Not because I made it good. What God's looking for is not a perfect heart. What he's looking for is an honest heart. A heart that's got no... Uh, facade on it, no disguises, a heart that's not got hidden motives, but a heart that just says, Lord, I want you and I want what you want. If you say today, that's not my heart. That's, I want it to be that way, but that's honestly not where I'm at. Can I tell you, you can't organize your heart like you organize your closet. This is not a work you can do by yourself. What you need is time with the master. What you need is time with Jesus. What you need is like David to bring yourself before God and say, investigate my heart. Heal my heart, refine my heart. Lord, purify me because he can do it. You know what? He can do it. He wants to do it. He will do it. And when you come to him, he won't turn you away. So just draw near to God. Draw near to God and lay your life open before him. Dedicate yourself to him. Dedicate yourself to the word and to prayer and to the, the, the fellowship of believers because what's gonna happen is you're gonna see yourself change. You're gonna see your life change. Watch out, flee from that stuff that you don't need to be part of. Put away the, the clutter. Put away the empty speculations and discussions that do no good. Put away the distractions in your life and come on, if you'll do that, God will ignite something in you that will fuel your walk with him, that will bring life to yourself and to others around you. God has got something stirring in you that you don't even know is there, 
Make room, prepare the way, clear the brush, because God wants to do it in you. Today, if that's you, I, I urge you today, right where you are, to, to lift your hands and to kneel, just receive from God, to just say, Lord, I want that. Lord, cleanse my heart. Lord, purify my heart. Lord, use me. God, I, I don't even know what my motives are anymore. I just certainly uh, not what they used to be or not what I want them to be. But God, I know that you know my heart better than I know myself, that you see it, you investigate, you know me. And you love me. You love me enough to die for me. So Lord, I'm asking today that you would search me and know me. Remove from me any harmful way. God, begin to do your work in my heart by your spirit. Fill me with your spirit. Fill me with you. God, I want to be so full of you that everything else gets pushed out. Lord, I, I, I may... Maybe, I, maybe today you're, you're high IQ, maybe you're low IQ, maybe you're highly educated, maybe you're lowly educated, maybe you got a lot of money, maybe you got a little money. This isn't about your, your knowledge. This isn't about uh, uh, what, what you have or what you don't have. This is about letting your heart be simple again. Letting it be simple. Letting it be pure. Letting it be uncomplicated. And that doesn't mean that it's, that it's, it's immature. It just means that you're saying, God, my heart, I want it to be pure before you. I want it to be honest and good. God will use that kind of heart. So today, if that's you, let God do it.